Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Fuds on Film podcast. I'm Scott, and I'm joined today by Craig. I will not be silenced. And Drew. I could possibly be silenced. Make me a good <laughs> offer. <laughs> <laughs> so, today, it is the 90s, and there is time for clacks, or in this instance, neo-noir films, which we thought we'd do for some reason. Craig, was there any particular reason for this? Um, it is a sort of subgenre which I've always been very interested in. Uh, not interested enough to spend any time thinking about why there was particularly this sort of rash of this type of movies around the time that we're going to be talking about but uh, I'm, I'm glad there was uh, it's essentially a type of film which is right up my alley typically uh, low budget genre affair you know the sort of the sort of film that I think might have come about off the back of the sort of burgeoning popularity of the indie scene at that point and I think perhaps mm. studios saw this type of thing as a convenient means to make some sort of gain bread and butter if you will from from not much in terms of investment because certainly I think everything we're talking about tonight you'll be lucky if any of these films was made for anything over about six million dollars uh, I may be wrong um, but yeah I've just always been fascinated at why there would be this uh, kind of resurgence around this time of this particular type of film and it yielded some interesting results uh, interesting at the time I'm sure there are others that we'll probably feel differently about now in retrospect uh, now that we've reviewed some of these but I suspect we'll discuss that as we go along Indeed, certainly a marked difference from the uh, rush to the tent poles that we've seen in the past uh, decade or so where only films that gets made are Incredibly high budget. These oh. none of these are. Oh yeah, Avengers Endgame. Uh, none of these are. No. <laughs> yes. So we shall start things off today with a look at one false move, uh, in which one early night Billy Bob Thornton's Ray Malcolm, Cinda Williams, Leela Fantasia Walker, and Michael Beach's Elaine Pluto Franklin murder six people while searching for a dealer's stash of coke and cash. Jim Metzler and Earl Billings are the detectives assigned to the case and soon uncover links to Star City, Arkansas, and so get in touch with the local 5 down there. That means talking to Bill Paxson's Sheriff Dale Hurricane Dixon, a hooting yahoo who's excited to get some real police work done, not just breaking up drunken home disputes. As it becomes clear that the perps are indeed headed that way, Fantasia having grown up in these parts, the LA detectives head out to Star City to lay a trap. However, there may be more to our sheriff than there appears to be on the surface, which admittedly would not be hard, and his history with Fantasia provides what I'm sure was intended as some complicating texture to the story in the final act. While One Falls Move isn't the worst of the, these uh, neo-noirs we'll speak of today, it's not doing a lot for me, which is a shade disappointing given the reputation it appears to have gathered since its release. I don't think of any conceptual beef with the narrative or the atmosphere, which I suppose are the foundations of the genre, but a lot of the charm of a noir comes from the characters, and here there's just too many cluttering up the place to no real avail. And the one that is focused on, I do not buy in the slightest. Sorry, Bill, but you are the first in an episode-long repeated motif of characters I cannot take seriously in the slightest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess you did such a good job of slathering on the backwood hillbilly that it's too much of an ask to buy any kind of excavation of the character's depth as the film comes to an end. As for the rest of the gang, whether they come off better or worse as a matter of perspective, most of them are giving so much less to do that it's not really the actor's faults that they come across as one-note sketches, particularly our trio of criminals that get no develop at all for the amount of runtime they consume. I believe it's Pluto that's referred to multiple times as some sort of genius, which is something very much told and not shown, and there's a similar lack of meat to the bones of everyone else, particularly disappointing in the case of Cinda Williams's character. There's an interesting story here somewhere, but for my money it takes place over the course of an hour-long conversation between the sheriff and Fantasia, and probably on a stage somewhere. As for the film, it turns out the real one false move was watching it. 
<laughs> harsh. <laughs> harsh. Uh, well, before I... Yeah. Well, you go on then, Drew. You go on. Uh, I don't have a lot to add to what Scott says. It starts off just... Yeah, Bill Pax is a big problem. He's this horrible racist Yahoo, and it doesn't really improve from that point. It only really goes downwards, but not particularly interesting. And the, the other big problem I had with it is that Cindy Williams is a terrible actress. I'm trying to remember, I think I had the same issue with her in Mo Better Blues, which to the best of my recollection mm. is the only other thing I've seen her in. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, as she travelled through this film, more or less switched off. Um, or maybe that's just the extent of her ability, but she was just a complete non-entity, as well as the character just being very unpleasant. And I feel, are we supposed to feel sympathetic towards this character? You know, this terrible murderer who also abandoned her child, like, it's not getting any sympathy for me in this, and like there's there's no good character because the two LA cops are more just kind of there. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. The, the biggest disappointment for me, and you mentioned that Scott was Pluto, because they'd mentioned it's got something like a 150 IQ, hmm. um, and he always seems to be really calm and calculated one. So I just had this feeling like that they set him up that at the end he was going to be. Just it would like kill everybody because it would let him get away and he'd have all the money on his own. Because mm. um, he's too cool to like lose his um, rag like Billy Bob Thornton does. And in the end, it's like, no, they did nothing with that character at all. He just dies. Yeah. Like, he's a complete unexploded bomb. Like, why build him up like that and do nothing with it? Yeah, I, so, I don't know why that character's there. I don't know why really the detectives from earlier are there. They don't really serve a lot of purpose no. other than a point mm. in the direction. I mean, there, there's a lot of work that I think could have been done. Let's say, that's why I think the interesting conflict there would be the sheriff and um, Fantasia having some kind of reckoning with what happened in the past and what I'm there and just have those two characters be and get rid of the rest of them because they don't really do anything. Like, I like Billy Bob Thornton, but what does he do in this film apart nothing. from shout a bit? You know? Mm. And yeah, waste, and of, waste of film. It's, it's the way it's structured as well. Like you have your final um, sequences with the uh, they're trying to find the house and the same where it ends up being a shootout, which is pretty underwhelming itself. But they've created drama by them not being able to get there in time because they're relying on a five-year-old to tell them where to go. <laughs> this seems like they've already established quite clearly that the brother was lying to the police. But why not just take the adult with you and say, "Look, you're already in trouble." show us where they are, where the house is, you know, and uh, but that would undercut all the drama, all the tension in that last act, so it's clearly why they did it, but it's, it's stupid, you're relying on a five-year-old. There is there is an awful lot of, like say, positioning of pieces and kind of build-up in this film that none of which really gets paid off, and uh, it was interesting for me to revisit it now because I don't, I'd only ever seen it once before, and it was a couple of years after it came out, and I don't know, I don't remember, I don't remember renting it, I might have done but I would have been sort of 14, 15 at the time, and it's not normally the sort of thing I would have been super attuned to, but I think on, um, it might have been on Sky or something actually, so I might have seen it on satellite TV, and it very much uh, by by word of mouth and reputation, because it, uh, you know it's very, I mean, really sedately paced, really, for the most part. Uh, there are obviously, you know, some violent scenes uh, throughout the movie but it's not really you know it's not an action movie it's not particularly hectically paced it's not something that would traditionally appeal to a 14 year old boy (laughs) so I think I'd bought into it on the grounds of recommendation and I remember really liking it at the time which was so probably a very early part of my formative experience of like developing my faculties a bit more and broadening my taste beyond just stuff blowing up Um, 
and stuff being in space, uh, which up until that point was probably about the only type of thing I was really interested in cinematically. Stuff blowing up in space. Well, you know, it's that's why girl, it, isn't it? Well, exactly, which is why Armageddon is the Citizen Kane of our times. Um, but... <laughs> Um, so it was interesting to come back now, and I, I still kind of enjoyed One False Move, but I was left a little bit more perplexed by it this time round, primarily because, as, as you guys have pointed out, you know, I'm not really sure there's a sense of payoff for anything. Um, and certainly some, like I say, some pieces are positioned, and there's a great deal of anticipation, and I don't remember the ending playing out quite as dully um, as it does. Uh, and then to read that this was, uh, I think, was it Gene Siskel's favourite film of 1992? Yes. Yeah, I believe that was right, yeah. So he yeah, if, I, if IMDb trivia is to be believed, which we know it's not, but, you know, for, I suppose <laughs> for the most part, there'd be no reason to lie about that, probably. So, yeah, I do find it slightly perplexing. I'm maybe not as down on it as you guys, but I tell you, I find this possibly more interesting now in context as a sort of, you know, another sort of point on the graph of Billy Bob Thornton's uh, career trajectory because it was another of his writing efforts and I think must have come must have come after Sling Blade when was very close in terms of Sling Blade, Sling Blade was Sling Blade 91? I don't know. Sling Blade was Enhanced 96, Sling Blade's afterwards it was when, sorry? It's 96 Oh wow! Right, okay. I think the so the short story, the the short film, the mm. original Sling Blade, is mm-hmm. before that. I think, but the actual mm. feature film is ninety six. Right, okay. So it'd be another sort of four years before we had our French fried taters. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, <laughs> and that's yes. a great film. Yes. Um, so it's kind of interesting for me in that perspective of watching Billy Bob Thornton's career develop, but perhaps you know as you guys have pointed out, in terms of writing, more interesting than perhaps his performance on screen. Um, and notable for being another stop on his other uh, parallel trajectory of just marrying people for five minutes. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I have mixed feelings on coming back to One False Move because it's been, geez, I guess, yeah, I'm guessing it's been like 25 years since I saw it. <laughs> the other thing I didn't realise, because in common with a lot of the movies I think we'll talk about tonight, there's not necessarily a great deal to date it, because, you know, noir films tend to be a relatively, you know, timeless genre, but uh, I, I don't recall it having been, or the soundtrack, uh, or the score at least, having been composed almost entirely of off-cuts from Lethal Weapon 2. There's just some really bizarre sort of like... Uh, it's a, a whole lot of terrible 1980s. Yes, it's like, oh, well I sat with me. I, re- I remember uh, this music from that time when Riggs was lamenting something. Um, <laughs> so, uh, just like, just really weird. I wouldn't be surprised to find that uh, the same person was involved in both scores, but yeah, not... Um, not cripplingly disappointed, but um, one of those, uh, and not as disappointed as, as I was with one film in particular on this list to revisit. But I, I don't. It's the same one that I was hugely disappointed by, but I'll see. Right. Well, I will, yeah, I, I can't envisage coming back to one false move. There's a big enough list of films I need to catch up with that, and, you know, if we go on averages the remaining 40 odd years of my life, I probably won't get back around to one false move again. <laughs> yeah. Um, just before we move on, one. There's a couple of things I wanted to mention. One is simply, uh, it was more of a, an article of interest, but I was surprised to see the second unit DP of this film was Janusz Kaminski. 
Oh, really? That, that name really stood out to me in the credits. Like, oh, okay. Uh, I can kind of see that for some of the landscape shots and stuff, maybe, if that's what he was doing. Yeah, but you wouldn't say it's got his mark all over it. Not particularly. Uh, I, mean, I don't I know would how need to, big I would the need second to, unit was on it, how much yeah, they were doing. Well, exactly, I suppose. Um, and I would need to see where this sits within his career, I suppose, to make any comment on that, but that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, you mentioned Gene Siskel. Mm. His partner in reviewing, Roger Ebert, also praised the film, and he said, this, uh, It is a powerful directing job. He starts with an extraordinary screenplay and then finds the right tones and moods for every scene, realising it's not the plot we care about, it's the people. Like That's quite a spectacularly poor read of that film, because the yeah. people are not interesting. <laughs> yeah, I have. I suppose I have... I have <clears throat> I have thoughts about Bill Paxton. I think uh, a lot of people... I've always felt really at odds with other people's opinion at large of Bill Paxton, which I think... pretty rubbish. For the most part, yes. I mean, yeah. and rest is so, uh, because, you know, uh, he was he was privy to a lot of interesting movies, but I do feel a lot of people base their opinions on his entire career on his performance as Hudson. <laughs> and the fact that his performance is, in, is enjoyable, but I think that basically colours a lot of people's opinions. But I would say in this film, it kind of plays to his strengths, which is not to say that he is a, a, a low-life racist <laughs> in, or was one in real life. But I think the sort of limitations of this character uh, culturally perhaps are more in keeping with what I perceive to be Bill Paxton's narrower range of yeah. acting capability. Certainly in the roles that I've seen him in on the screen, I have no idea whatsoever uh, whether or not his career as a stage performer perhaps yielded stronger results, but I've always felt odds with that. But I didn't. I wasn't quite as down on him in this movie yeah. as you guys were, perhaps. Well, no, it's interesting you say that because, Scott, what's the name of that terrible Catherine Bigelow vampire film that we watched a little while ago? Oh, uh, I know the one. That was another film that a couple of years ago I was really disappointed to come back to. Not The Hunger. Near Dark. Near Dark. That's it. Uh, yeah, because particularly when Scott and I did our Catherine Bigelow episode and we mentioned that and I um, mm. mentioned the time of... Because I think that could have been that long after he died and I remember when he died, a lot of people were saying, oh, I really missed him and he was great. And like, he wasn't. He really wasn't. And then he's particularly terrible in that film. Mm. Um, and that's one of the more recent things that I'd seen him in, uh, beyond like stuff I really obviously really know, like True Lies or Aliens or something. And or so Twister. Kind of, uh, <laughs> one of your favourites. I've seen that. Um, but so I was kind of a wee bit on edge, well not on edge, but expecting much worse from this, and that actually kind of surprised me by not being terrible. So I think yeah. maybe it's because there's something like, he doesn't have a broad range, but this character was quite within that range, so it worked mm-hmm. well. It's the, the problem, actually, with the film turned out to not be his performance, it was the writing. Um, yeah. Because that character's barely written. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, nothing, there's no depth there at all. Yeah, and like you say, this this whole revelation about the nature of a child in the movie. Um, although, on you know, that's kind of shoehorned, shoehorned in as quotation marks, character development, which it, which it really isn't. It just feels a bit forced. But... On the note of child, do you know the best performance in this movie was at the start of the film uh, with the kid who was hiding in the room upstairs? Yeah. That was heartbreaking. I have no idea how that child, who is clearly, what, four years old or something like that, if that, 
was so convincingly terrified and sobbing in the corner. I'm, I'm really worried that like someone now, threatened we, to beat that kid <laughs> up or something to get that cynic, from them. But, um, I, I am thinking like that kid had his toy stolen off him right before the camera started rolling. Or yeah, maybe it was prodded in the side or something. I, like that that I, punched I don't me. Imagine that's acting. No, that punched me right in the gut at the start. I was like, oh my god, that poor kid. Um, I was really, I was, I thought that was really upsetting. And then I'm like, oh god, yeah, yeah, I remember this being a powerful film. Mm, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> Deary me, shall we move on? Yes, yes. Let's move on to Red Rock West then. So, yeah, by chance, I think, rather than creating some tension, we have two John Dahl directed films in this mm. episode. The first of which is 1993's Red Rock West, starring Nicholas Cage and Lara Flynn Boyle. <laughs> JT Walsh also and Dennis Hopper. Cage is Michael Williams, a drifter from Texas looking to get a job on an oil drilling crew in Wyoming. When that doesn't work, <laughs> he takes his last five dollars, gets his death in one ear, <laughs> and heads out on the road. <laughs> Eventually stopping in Red Rock, where he walks into a bar and encounters JT Walsh's Wayne. Clocking Michael's Texas license plate, Wayne assumes Michael to be Lyle from Dallas, the overdue hitman he expected last week. Uh, okay, I think you get the jokes, so I'll yeah, stop. You're giving, you're giving Scott a goddamn editing nightmare here. <laughs> Unaware first of the nature of employment, but desperately in need of the same, Michael plays along with the case of mistaken identity, playing it cool when receiving $5,000 and instructions to bump off Wayne's wife, Suzanne, Larflin Boyle. He lets himself into Suzanne's house with the key he was given, informs her of the contract, and receives double the payment from her to kill Wayne instead. But being a very moral man, Michael decides simply to take the money from the would-be murderers by proxy, write a letter to the Red Rock Sheriff, and leave town with no one hurt, which seems pretty ethically sound to me. Unfortunately, Michael hits a man in the middle of the road outside of town, and is compelled to take him to hospital, back in Red Rock. Two further complications arise at the hospital. Before being hit by Michael's car, the guy in the road had already been hit by two bullets, and the sheriff arrives. A sheriff whose name so happens to be Wayne. Oh dear. (laughs) Soon Michael and Wayne are taking a nice little car trip together, so skedaddle time for Michael at the first opportunity. The real Lyle from Dallas, Hopper, turns up dressed like cage acts, i.e. ridiculously and exaggeratedly, and encounters Michael by nearly running him down in the road as he flees from Wayne. They at first bond over being marines, but Lyle's insistence on buying Michael a drink is complicated by this drink being offered at Wayne's pub, and Wayne's due back any moment. Skedaddle, take two. But first he should warn Suzanne, and she's not quite ready to leave town yet, so it's back to Red Rock they go. The running gag entering Red Rock and leaving Red Rock signs ought to have had their own credits. The centre of the film is Cage, in a fairly toned-down role. Look, everything's relative, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, Michael's not stupid, but also not the wily and cunning fox his situation often demands, with his honesty causing him more trouble than he may consider it worth after a while. He's always playing catch-up to events, but is adept enough at bluffing until he gathers more information and formulates a plan. And watching Cage experiencing these situations is fun. JT Walsh is also an interesting villain, trying reason more often than intimidation, Mm -hmm. and more of him and less of Dennis Hopper would have been welcome. 
talking of Hopper, on the scale of Dennis Hopper performances, this <laughs> probably lands somewhere between Speed and Super Mario Brothers. Make of that what you will. <laughs> Sadly, Lara Flynn Boyle is out of her depth, though that'd be more of an issue if Red Rock's tone was darker and more serious than it is. Red Rock West is a recently entertaining um, film, but really serves more as an appetiser for other John Dahl film, which outshines it in every way, particularly in its humour and its femme fatale. However, Dahl's clearly a fan of the noir and western genres, and he has a bit of fun with both here in this mix-up, and it's definitely worth a watch. How rare is it to say that... I watched a Nick Cage film where the most believable character in it was Nick Cage. Mm. <laughs> it's just not something that typically happens. Um, yeah, in an episode where, oh, got to be honest, slender pickings for me. This episode, um, this one didn't mind so much. Um, quite liked the, the kind of more jokey tones of it, and I particularly liked uh, having an almost reasonable, normal character in Nick Cage's character just blundering his way through it with being kind of relatable in a way when you've got guys like Dennis Hopper doing what would usually be the Nick Cage role. <laughs> and uh, it's, yeah, it, it works reasonably well. I wasn't blown away by anything, but um, yeah, it's quite an enjoyable uh, enough film. And I particularly should mention that this is a soundtrack that, because it's kind of a Western almost as much as it is a noir, has a soundtrack that I actually quite liked because it's not saxophones constantly. <laughs> yeah. So that's cool. <laughs> 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 Nobody in this film was only two days away from retirement when any of this happened. <laughs> so, straight up front, this film is um, the biggest single reason why I uh, proposed this episode. And it is a film I've had a huge amount of affection for and I've watched any number of times, and I suppose probably most recently, about ten years ago. And I, I loved this film intensely. And so I was quite disappointed to come back to it now i i wish i'd let it live on in my memory because for all the times i'd watched it and enjoyed it before i really could only see the flaws in it this time and i don't know if that's because it's the first time that i've come to it looking critically but something was really lacking this time round. well something that clearly wasn't there to begin with but i don't remember this film playing quite so humorously as it does. I remember it being a lot more serious. I remember it being a lot more oppressive in its atmosphere. The score that you mentioned, Scott, I have... And this just goes to show how... Well, whether or not it's just memory being unreliable or it's just that tastes have changed or <laughs> really it just hasn't aged well. I know you're saying like you, you like the soundtrack. I remember the soundtrack to this film being my favourite aspect of it and even that underwhelmed me this time <laughs> that really minimalist almost like um rykuder on ketamine kind of uh, uh guitar <laughs> you know exactly what i mean uh, just that like three guitar chords played really yeah exactly um i remember that being my favorite thing about it and i remember lara flynn boyle who is rarely uh, at this period in particular anything less than an absolute smoke show uh, I remember her being easily the most smouldering femme fatale amongst the films with which I'm familiar, which are on this list that we'll talk about tonight. And none of this proved to be true this time round. And the, I think the ludicrous nature of certain aspects of the film, there are certain parts that I just, on a normal day, I would be able to forgive and have clearly done so in the past. And for whatever reason, I don't know if just turning... 40 just flips a, a switch 
in a in a white British man's uh, head or something. But the scene, like for example, where he's escaping on top of the truck, uh, walking across the plank between the roof of the bar and the trailer of the truck, and the truck driver and his mate are standing conservatively three feet below. Um, <laughs> Nick Cage and don't notice a man walking across a plank onto the roof of the truck um, and also I've got great problems with any film uh, whose climax in particular but really any part of the film hinges on anyone throwing a knife accurately I just don't believe that as a thing that happens in the real world I'm sorry uh, outside of circus sideshows and I don't think Dennis Hopper for all his theatricality ever worked in a circus sideshow yeah, I just really found myself finding faults with it this time. And it's, I'm not going to say it's necessarily killed this film outright because there are still aspects I enjoyed. I really like Nicolas Cage in this film because it's one of his most low-key performances in a while. Like, really low-key to the point where he's kind of standing still uh, <laughs> in cage terms. Uh, you know, relative cage terms, he is, he is at an absolute stand still for a lot of this. <laughs> and I think he can be all the more effective for that. But just something really missing this time round. And it was the first film that I sat down to rewatch in preparation for this podcast and it just set a really unfortunate tone for the rest of my viewing so but yes like you say Scott there there is or sorry I think yourself Drew maybe perhaps um, there is certainly a a much superior John John Dahl femme fatale to look forward to at least uh, in our near future and yeah I can't say much more than that no, um, I think we're all done, so will we move on um, to Romeo is Bleeding Awful? I'm, I'm sorry, Romeo is Bleeding. <laughs> because nothing says noir like a narrator. Gary Oldman stars in this 1993 affair from crazed director Peter Medak. And I'm going to stop there. As corrupt New York cop Jack Grimaldi, spending almost as much time taking backhanders from the mafia as he does rather cheating on his wife Natalie, Annabella Sciorra, whose surname I've never been certain about pronouncing, but I hope that's a close approximation. Um, First, you pronounce it in Italian, it's Shura. Shura, right, okay. This is an American Italian soul. Exactly. By change, I don't know. Yeah. For 60 grand a pop, Jack will happily shop the safe house location of an informant or witness and not think too much more of it, beyond burying his cash in his backyard on the way to his dream of boat drinks. His latest tip, however, resulted not just in the brutal death of the witness, but also his protective agents, about which Jack has at least an inkling of remorse. Making his discontent known to Mafia boss Don Falcone, Roy Scheider, Jack is informed the hit was the work of ruthless assassin and gangland figure Mona DeMarkov, Lena Olin, and is offered the opportunity to eliminate her himself after she is caught and similarly safe-housed. Seems a simple enough job, however DeMarkov is not your average gangster, proving to be every bit as manipulative and sadistic as she is seductive, which is quite substantially so. Demarkov begins to turn the tables on Jack and his whole racket of playing the middle threatens to collapse around him as he finds himself making some very difficult and painful life decisions. I've always found there's a lot to like about Romeo's Bleeding, which clearly Drew's already set the tone for this. We're going to, <laughs> we're going to be at least marginally at odds. Uh, and despite it having been quite some time since my last watch, I was assured, or reassured rather, to find there remains little to date it beyond some really bad 90s suits and a predictably overbaked Gary Oldman. It's the kind of movie that could have been made any time in the last 40 years, which I suppose can be as much a curse as it is a blessing. But Oldman, and particularly Olin, are clearly having so much fun with their roles that I find it pretty easy to forgive them movie it's flaws 
They are supported by a secondary cast which on paper looks absolutely nuts and contains more than a couple of names you wouldn't expect to find in largely blink-and-miss-it roles. But listen, if you can get Juliette Lewis, Dennis Farina, Ron Perlman, James Cromwell and Will Patton to sign on for two days' work apiece, then more power to you. Maybe they were all big fans of Spandau Ballet. Hungarian-born British director Peter Medak had honed his craft mostly in television throughout the 70s and 80s up until he bought himself some profile with the 1990s The Craze. His work here suggests a firm, if slightly workmanlike, grasp of both the medium and the genre, and he keeps things moving along at decent enough lick and with enough momentum to paper over most of the cracks. If I had to pick one flaw, I find it difficult to excuse, then I'd have, <laughs> I'd have to go with Oldman's narration, which, in common with 99% of movies featuring voiceover, just isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. Nothing says, I don't trust my audience to be as smart as me quite like it. I'm pretty sure in Romeo's case it was more of a stylistic choice, hearkening to the Chandler-shaped shadow that has always loomed over the genre, but in this instance it's been pretty badly misjudged the Jack Grimaldi narrating this movie is not the same Jack Grimaldi we see in it, adopting an oddly overblown vocal affectation so detached from Oldman's on-screen performance makes me wonder why it wasn't just attributed to a different party altogether it's also disappointing that Sciorra and Juliet Lewis, who plays Jack's mistress, aren't given more to do. The former so fleetingly sketched as to make the stakes of Jack's marriage feel somewhat incidental, and the latter entirely superfluous to the plot besides shoring up the notion of what a total prick Jack is. Still, Olin's presence is strongly enough felt to alleviate some of my concern that the movie is doing the fairer sex a complete disservice, and her character, while not massively fleshed out beyond psychotic, manipulative bitch, has certainly always been interesting enough to hold my attention on repeat viewing. It will likely be another substantial period of time before Romeo once again comes into my orbit, but I've never not looked forward to watching it, and the same will no doubt be true of it then. Drew, this is where we fight. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I was I was going to see what Scott had to say first before I said my piece. Having, uh, no, no come on, let's have this way. out. Let's have this out. <laughs> this is terrible. This is such a bad film. I it's not every minute. It is awful. It's not terrible. It and you are a bad man. <laughs> oh, no, I know. I, I did not go with this film at all. I saw that badly. Reviews. I saw there's some review of this somewhere that suggested this was a satire, and I think that person might have been smoking quite something quite heavily that day. Uh, that was a nonsense. But no, it's like it starts off with a voiceover, which is awful and unnecessary, um, and clearly it's in there because well, old war films have voiceovers, right? But yeah, uh, you made your points quite clear, and I agree with all those. Like it's, it's not even this doesn't have anything to do with the film, let alone that character. It's just not the same. Mm. Character talk, but then Gary Oldman is spectacularly awful in this film. He's he basically spends nearly the entire film looking like a scared wee boy. Um, with, almost, <laughs> with almost every scene with this stupid glake look in his face, like completely bewildered looking. <laughs> he's so bad in this. Um, I mean, he's in this. I think he's probably pretty close to matching Book of Eli bad, and he's terrible in that. Different type of bad, but. Kind of same degree, and then just like none of the plot made any sense, like at all. Lena Olin's character has to get her arm cut off because she's going to be killed, but she ends up killing the person who would have killed her anyway. And like then she was working with the fit, and none, no, none of it makes any sense. <laughs> and really stupid things too that bother me. Um, not specifically in this film; it happens all the time. But there's that scene where they're driving down a pretty much abandoned street, apart from parked cars, mm-hmm. where Lena Olin wakes up on the back seat, puts her um, legs on Gary Oldman's neck, and then he proceeds to crash. Like, 
Why didn't you just break? According to Wikipedia, garter snake is a common... (laughs) 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 You have to... Um, is that because you said legs are round his neck? I assume I must have done. That's um, amazing. That's amazing. That's staying in. That is staying in. Uh, yes, yeah, so as I was asking, I didn't want um, Listen, the get, tube to tell me. You need to get yourself a home pod instead, mate. Yeah, so they're driving down the street, like, why didn't you just brake? It's like driving down the street for ages clearly has enough control to steer so why not just pay like oh no because they wanted the crash to happen and i i hate that kind of crap i really do mm. uh then like she knew that he would a be able to track her down b um on the right night c would burst in and kill people immediately and that whole juliet lewis death scene like no this the whole film is really really stupid um <laughs> do you think you've taken this too seriously <laughs> I hate this film, Craig. I haven't taken it seriously enough yet. No, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, and like he's that's all right. You and I are only feds. on you and I are only on strike two out of two recent <laughs> podcasts. Don't worry about it. What was the other one? I can't remember. What was the one we recorded last? And I said it's all right. We can disagree and still be friends. I can't remember. Congo, what it was probably. It. What was that? Congo. <laughs> <laughs> <Could it be? laughs> I don't know that I'm going to factor Congo in in my decision making process there I think regardless of your opinion on Congo you get a pass <laughs> I don't count that as a strike yeah and it, like he was supposed to be getting protection from the feds but what exactly was he able to testify to and all it's like none of the plot makes sense which really bothers me and then I said Gary Oldman's terrible the voiceover's terrible the only thing that interests me was like I've never seen Ron Perlman so hairy. Uh. <laughs> that is a takeaway. <laughs> uh, listen, I will not deny you that is a takeaway. Yeah, no, I, I just I, I hated it. I really did. <laughs> Scott, you want to be my friend still, right? Like, seeing as no one's mentioned it so far, I don't think uh, this is another film. This episode with a soundtrack that ought to report directly to the bin. Uh, <laughs> you know, no, thank you. Um, other than that, the only other note I've made on Roaming Was Bleeding is that it made so little impact on me that I keep forgetting I've seen it. I had to keep going <laughs> up, looking up who's in this to remember what it is. But now, now Drew describes it. I'm actually more in his camp. Uh, I, I, I didn't enjoy this when I was watching it. Um, I, I didn't particularly hate it, but I couldn't. I found it very difficult to concentrate on anything that's happening in it. it just, it just bounced off me um so i won't be so stridently against it uh, as you are drew but i suspect if you'd if you'd sat me down and forced me to watch it properly critically i'd definitely be more than your captain craigs um because yeah there's, there's a lot of stuff that's uh this just uh, doesn't make a lot of sense plot wise and I, I i don't think we're supposed to be taking this entirely seriously but still it needs at least a patina of respectability which it, it just can't put together. Oldman's performance is not enough to kind of hold all this together. He's just not good enough in this film to kind of keep you, in, or certainly keep me interested in his tribulations as he goes through these increasingly wacky set of events. And uh, yeah, it, it, it just didn't work all that well for me. I don't, I'm not sure I hate it, but if you'd made me watch it again, I probably would hate it. So I'm not going to. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's not troubling my list of top hundred favorite films of all time or anything like that. <laughs> but I do disagree with you strongly enough on how how badly you feel this film is represented. That I am happy for our friendships to diverge at this point and bid you farewell. 
Fine. It's um, been a pleasure. I'll... Well, that's a bit strong. It's been. I've definitely known you. <laughs> oh, it's all coming out in the wash now. I'll leave with my taste intact. Um, it's, all, it's all coming out in the wash now. Never mind the tumble dry. <laughs> Drying tumbler, as we oh. established earlier. Little in joke for you, there, listeners. Little in joke for you. What's it, possessor? Little inside uh, baseball. Uh, oh, it might have been. It might have been. Although now you've mentioned that, I mean, Scott raised the spectre of Congo, and I'm worried that the, my biggest takeaway from this episode is going to be that uh, I just want to watch Congo again. <laughs> oh, I thought it was going to be that you'd um, potentially ended a, what, nearly 30-year friendship over Congo, but no, apparently it's, it's the other thing. <laughs> no, no, it's the other thing. It's the other thing. Don't worry that about easy, that. easy come, easy go, but yeah. you've got to put Congo in its proper context. Yeah. Don't worry about that. Come on. Oh dear. Um, well, we move on to um, a film we've mentioned a couple of times already now, then, which is The well, Last Seduction. Probably best for a number of reasons. <laughs> yes, you can tell early on that Linda uh, Florentino's Bridget Gregory is not intended to be a sympathetic protagonist as she runs a telemarketing outfit in New York. <laughs> uh, her husband, an apparently very mature medical student, Bill Poolman's Clay Gregory, is a bit of a loser, deep in hawk to a lone shark, but may just be turning things around after stealing a bunch of pharmaceutical cocaine and flogging them to drug dealers for 700 grand, which was apparently Bridget's idea. However, Bridget would rather have that cash for herself, so she runs off with it, going into hiding under a new identity, Wendy Croy, out in the sticks near Buffalo until a divorce can be arranged and the money suitably laundered. Clay's not taking it lying down, though, hiring a private detective to track Bridget down. Meanwhile, Bridget has started a relationship of sorts with Peter Berg's Mike Swale, purely sexual on her side, but increasingly more unrequitedly lovey-dovey on Mike's end of things, making him a prime target for Bridget's manipulations as Clay starts closing in on her. The annoying thing about The Last Destruction, well, the primary annoying thing about it at least, is a waste of potential. I'm entirely on board with a battle of wits, but this is one-sided at best. Even where Mike and Clay's wits to be merged, they'd barely be a half-wit, so watching Bridget <laughs> outsmart them is akin to out- outsmarting a small child by stealing their nose with your thumb. It's, <laughs> it's easy to forget that Peter Berg is sometimes an actor, mainly because his performances are so forgettable, and while that's pretty much the case here, he can't take comfort in not being Bill Pullman, who must have been told he's in a comedy, or alternatively downed that supply of pharmaceutical cocaine before selling it. Linda Florentino is not, I think, someone I've formed any fixed opinion about prior to watching this, and I'm not inclined to develop a positive or negative one on the basis of this film, uh, which means she uns- escapes unscathed from a film I'm otherwise scathing about. Uh, perhaps my mistake was taking this seriously, as I think this was pitched primarily as an exploitation skin flick, and any other qualities it may have had were either incidental or accidental. A complete waste of time and effort for all involved. Didn't like it at all. Oh, a correction. After the recounts, the primary annoying thing about Last Seduction was in fact the soundtrack. I regret the error and also watching the film. <laughs> I'm going to disagree with you on this one as well, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think of the bunch uh, that we rewatched for this, I probably uh, Last Seduction is perhaps the only one that went up in my estimation because I remember being sort of crucially disappointed by this early doors although it'd probably be the poster child for this sort of subgenre that we're discussing tonight at the time a big deal was made of it and certainly something happened with Fiorentino's career off the back of it and her performance here uh, I can't remember was she uh, did she get any award nominations for this I know there was a lot of there was a lot of talk around the time there was a lot of buzz around her and I think 
tellingly of that era in filmmaking, I think the precedent was set around people's willingness to get their, or, or women's willingness to get their kit off to fulfil these kind of roles. And besides Men in Black, nothing much happened with Linda Fiorentino after this. But in going in going back to this now, um, I found it a lot more enjoyable, and I think a lot of the humour of it probably went over my head when I first watched this back in... It wasn't immediately after it came out. It probably would have been 97, 98, I guess, that I saw it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think I was quite tuned in enough uh, to the to the humour then. I certainly was now, and I, I, I appreciated that. Um, I think it offered something different to the pack in that respect. And although... Fiorentino's character uh, Fiorentino's character is just like massively massively amoral to the point of like almost nihilism I think um, there is still some pleasure to be had in watching her obvious manipulation of people um, primarily Mike who is just who is innocent but such a wet blanket that I was quite happy to see all manner of bad things happen to him I just wanted to slap the guy he is like a 20 odd year old guy who acts like he's only ever had one serious girlfriend before and is so desperate to fall in love with this woman that I just wanted to reach into the screen and throttle him and just it is so obvious and unfortunately Peter Berg plays it incredibly well I think in that respect and whether that's a function of his limitations as an actor at this point I don't know but I really just wanted to reach into the screen and throttle the character so I was really glad to see him being abused by Linda Fiorentino that was great Again, I'm not sure that I'm going to come back to The Last Seduction anytime soon, but I very much more enjoyed my watch of it this time around. Uh, and I think there's a good deal to recommend it if you are not familiar with the film or the genre at large. Although, clearly, Scott, you would disagree. Again, that is all right. <laughs> yeah, um, Craig, Linda Fiorentino got BAFTA nominated, which is the most significant um, right. nomination for this. So um, she did mm. get some kind of awards buzz around her. Oh. Uh, I really liked this. I really liked it the last time I saw it, which may have just been once. Uh, Are you only uh, saying that because you were worried that after this podcast I was just going to cut all ties, Drew? You're pronouncing hope very strangely. <laughs> I mean, sorry, no. I was, uh, <laughs> no, um, I think I must have watched it around about the same time as you. Um, kind of 97 mm. that kind of time and I remembered really liking it uh, and finding Linda Fiorentino very attractive but beyond that that not much more stuck in my memory so I was kind of mm. coming to this fresh and I really enjoyed it I certainly hadn't remembered quite how funny it was mm. and Scott does have a fair point in that it's there's not much of a battle of wits there at all because yeah everybody else no. has come very much unprepared for that battle <laughs> but I just found it very entertaining watching her do that and you know as much as a, of a sap as Mike is, like you thinking, okay, maybe she's is she just manipulating? She's evil. And it's like, oh no, wait, he just um, got absolutely blind drunk and drove a car. He can die in all the fires. Great, he's a he's absolutely acceptable as a victim now. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, that's even before he agrees to murder for her. So yeah, so it's a bit one side for that. Just that like, she's great. Really like her voice, and it's kind of. Mm. It's a really good femme fatale voice that she's got for, like, when you're doing a noir type of film. I find it really entertaining. I certainly the, I hadn't remembered the humour at all and appreciated that. If I yeah, were Linda Fiorentino's family and friends, I would worry about how well she inhabited this role. <laughs> because it's the kind of role that really depends on a strong performance. And it's not the kind of role, uh, this kind of profile, that there would have been a lot of those going at this time in Hollywood, right? So... Yeah. 
I think to see her make the most of it is like a thing of joy, and I'm 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 really ha- that character is obviously abhorrent, but it's one of those rare occasions where I'm happy to see an abhorrent character sort of get on and just mess people up because those 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 people make themselves such willing targets. Um, yeah, that's that, it. a character like that. It's like uh, the character being likable goes a long way. Uh, mm. Whereas, for instance, in Romeo's Bleeding, I hated Jack Grimaldi. I didn't want him to get to do well or anything. Whereas in this car- this film, I really like the character. Yeah, I, th- I think. Well, do you know one of the reasons I think I like the character so much is that because I think at a certain point you've gathered enough life experience that as a man, I would sit back and if if that character was trying to come on to meet a bar, I would know well enough to be like, get, get the fuck away from me, man! You're trouble. And I would have nothing to do with that. So there is almost a certain appeal in watching the younger man fall victim to that to that character and just that inexperience and naivety be preyed upon. I don't know if it's just it reassures someone of our age that thank goodness we don't have to worry about that kind of thing anymore. Uh, the, the biggest um, disappointment I have with this film isn't the film itself. It's more just that I've seen Linda Fiorentino in so little. Uh, mm, Sorry, yeah. Jade, which was late nineties. Dogma and Men in Black, and I don't really think I've seen her in anything else. Not that nope. I can recall anyway. Like she nope. should have been in much more stuff. On the strength of this, I would agree with you entirely. Yeah, big disappointment. That again, though, this is what I allude to before, um, and it's not the last time I'll allude to it in this podcast. Drew, I do wonder how much of that is down to the studio system. And right, you've established that you're willing to get your kit off in this film. Whether it's in, you know, you would argue sort of contextually in this film is probably fine, but you wonder how much expectation there is then on a on a, a, a woman of Linda Fiorentino's. I would I would suggest fairly obvious physical appeal to therefore just strip on a whim and expose herself or not have a career essentially, uh, regardless of how well you've established yourself in in material like this. That's that's my big fear about quite a few of the female roles that we'll we will discuss in this podcast yeah because a lot a lot of these actresses have put in really good performances in the films that we'll be talking about tonight and very little if anything has been seen of them since and you would wonder if they gave those performances in similar roles now that they wouldn't go on to a much more fulfilling career yeah yeah almost like they've sold something there that Mm. really wasn't worth it yeah yeah. Or I mean, it could be that Linda Fiorentino was an absolutely terrible trash person who was completely disagreeable, and her reputation within the industry preceded her. But you know, and and that's why her career ended up falling flat. But I don't get that impression. That's not my instinct. Put it that way. Yeah. Um, who knows? And that's I, I've not looked into that. Was you know, she's got a bad reputation or anything like that. Yeah. But, yeah. She seems quite ashamed. She kind of more or less fell off the radar at the end of the nineties. Yeah. Yeah, because on the basis of this, I like yourself, I would have liked to have seen her in a lot more stuff. Yeah, I mean, even if she was awful, how many awful actors in the male sense of things have been getting away with murder? Not literally, but all, all of them for the long time. So, yeah. yes, the answer is all of them, Scott. Yes, <laughs> aye. Drew's not looking at Dennis Quaid in particular, but ah, that's that's what's going to mention. Just you mentioned Dennis Quaid, though. Um, I was going to ask you about how you felt about Bill Pullman. I'd forgotten he was in it, and I thought, "Oh, Craig's not going to be happy revisiting this." Um, I don't. I didn't mind him so much in this man. He's he. I, I just feel like his performance was pitched at just about the right level. He was he was almost comic relief in this. 
and sort of was so willingly accepting of his fate. It, I don't, like he wasn't surprised at any of the bad turns. It's almost like, well, I knew this was all going to go to shit the moment I made this decision, so I might as well just have a laugh doing it. I kind of, I kind of appreciated the the very precise level his performance was pitched at, and I don't know if that was by instruction or by you know Bill Pullman's design, but yeah, I did not find Bill Pullman particularly. Um, disagreeable in this which yes a pleasant surprise i find that quite interesting because for the first time since you mentioned it which was back when we were doing (laughs) less than zero and you got entirely the wrong film which is um (laughs) because wasn't in that in our early um our hell episode (laughs) when you first mentioned this and I hadn't really, I think I've seen him in much since then. And I certainly had not really thought about him before that point. Mm. So I was like, oh, here's an opportunity. It's like, and in this film, I was like, I mean, he's not Dennis Quaid, but I can kind of see where Quaid's coming from because I thought he was incredibly bland. Really? <laughs> I was quite curious that in this film, you didn't feel that. It's not that, he's, it's not that I didn't find him bland. I just think he was kind of comedically bland. Let's say the, char- the character with, that character with the stakes that he's involved in, just seems so apathetic to it all and willingly accepting of it all and, and does so with such good humour that I can't help but sort of be engaged with him. It's not that the character wasn't necessarily bland, it's that the blandless the, the blandness kind of suited the comic intent or what mm. I perceive to have been the sort of comic intent of that role, if that makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, uh, that's, that's sort of an amusing thing. That I, oh, this is the first time I, um, I really got where you were coming from. Mm. Um, uh, Yes, that was all I had to say about that. I'm worried that I've actually got the wrong end of the stick with Bill Pullman. Maybe we should do a Bill Pullman retrospective because I've. The more I think about it, and if I look through the list of. If I look through Bill Pullman's career and the films of his that I've seen, I'm worried that there are more films of his that I've seen where actually his performance was all right than actually <laughs> bad ones. And I'm not sure I've been entirely fair well, in my thunder, assessment. Well, Thunder is praise. Actually, you know, he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure Bill Pullman will be losing a great deal of sleep over my uh, opinion. <laughs> Shall we move on to La Ceremonie then? <laughs> must we? <laughs> must we? <laughs> if you want to get to the end, we must. <laughs> <laughs> Are we all going to be in agreement on this one? The only way out is through. Uh, we first meet Sandrine Bonaire's Sophie as she has an interview with the wealthy Catherine, Jacqueline Bissett, for a job as a housekeeper. She gets the job and moves into the large country house where Catherine lives with her husband Georges, Jean-Pierre Cassel, son Gilles, Valentin Merlet, and stepdaughter Melinda, Virginie Ledoyen. Despite Sophie being maddeningly unresponsive in conversation, things otherwise seem to go well at first, with her seemingly content and the family pleased with her work. Sophie is hiding a secret though. And it's not that her hair was cut by a three-year-old when she fell asleep on the sofa, as that's plain for all to see. (laughs) But rather that she's illiterate, which causes problems with some of the tasks she's not unreasonably asked to perform. Resentment of the family begins to grow in Sophie, something hugely encouraged by her new and only friend Jeanne, Isabelle Hubert, the village postmistress, who seems to fancy herself something of a class warrior, as well as a gossip monger though it's entirely possible that all the gossip was also created by her, as there's no evidence at all for the strange things she claims go on in the family's house. The first time I saw this film, I really liked it, and now I wonder if I was ill that day. 
but you know, just not aware of it because in this viewing, I really didn't care for it <laughs> at all. You and me are even now, man. <laughs> <laughs> Some of that may come down to a hatred of Sophie's hair. Not a particularly rational thing, I'll grant you. <laughs> and some certainly comes down to a dislike for the inconsistency of Sophie's handicap. The shame she feels because of her inability to read and write is understandable, but we're supposed to believe she's smart enough to have hidden it for decades and held down similar jobs, yet too stupid to have worked out which coins are which and how money works. And when faced with something mildly vexing, locating a file on a desk, she hides in her room with the TV turned up like a sullen teenager. No. These childlike qualities are, it seems, supposed to serve to make her seem possible to manipulate by Jeanne, who herself acts like an overgrown child at times. She prods Sophie to stand up to the fascist oppression of her employers. Employers who, at worst, may be a little patronising. Happy to buy their new employee glasses and pay for driving licence for her in addition to her wages... The monsters. <laughs> and when Melinda helped Jeanne repair her broken down car, Melinda had the temerity to toss the hanky with which she removed some of the grime from the engine into Jeanne's car. Her own engine's dirt. Oh, these people. Oh, they're the worst. Viva la revolution. The crisis point comes when, given her actions in attempting to blackmail Melinda into silence after she discovers Sophie's secret, the family quite recently fire her. Returning to the house one evening with Jeanne to collect her things, they killed him instead. Why not? They were dressed up to watch <laughs> opera on TV, the bourgeois pigs. <laughs> Claude Chabrol's Le Ceremonie takes its name from a ritual that preceded death by guillotine. And it does seem that class warfare, or at least class tension, like that of the 18th century is at the heart of the film. I've not read the Ruth Rendell novel A Judgment in Stone on which this is based so I've no idea how much of that is in the source material but in the end this film reached to me as a couple of arseholes murder some people <laughs> though I'll mention again I really did not feel that way the first time I watched this and beginning to think I was not just watching a different film may have been a different person Yeah, it's okay because you're alright now, Drew <laughs> <laughs> What were the family guilty of? Obliviousness, perhaps? Not sufficiently checking their privilege? Maximilian Robespierre wrote The secret of freedom lies in educating people whereas the secret of tyranny is in keeping them ignorant When she discovers Sophie's secret Melinda seems entirely certain that her father would help her get the help and education she needs to learn to read and write Kel Tiron Off with his head <laughs> uh, I have only seen this in one place the New York Times, as it happens. But I read there that uh, Sandrine Bonner said that Mr. Chabrol suggested she think of her character as a vegetable. She chose to imagine <laughs> she chose to imagine herself as a stiff and featureless leek. Mm. If I tell you that I find that uncannily accurate, mm. you will perhaps <laughs> understand why I find Sophie and the film so unsympathetic and unlikable. When did when did you first watch this film, Drew? Uh, a couple of years ago, I think. Okay. Um, we had it mentioned on another podcast, and I thought, that's interesting. And I really like French cinema. Um, yeah. So I'm not taking like a long time in the past or anything like that. So it's like mm. a very quick turnaround. Mm. When I read somewhere that this was about class struggle, I was, I'm on board with that. Look, I'm very much Karl Marx's baby boy. Um, if it's eat the rich, I'm there with a bib and knife <laughs> and fork. I'm ready for it. But 
no, this ain't it, Chief. This, this, I think you you maybe gave them a bit too credit by describing them as sullen teenagers because this is this is toddler behaviour on their yeah. levels. And yep. again, fitting, fitting with the motive of this film of characters, I do not buy in the slightest. I do not buy these two in the slightest either. So, so infantile, it's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely ludicrous that these people would function as a human being. So I suppose in that regard, it might it fits within the frame of the film when they just show up and go, oh, look, now I've got shotguns, let's kill people. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of it being a satisfying film, oh, Lord, no. No, no, um, no, no, no. No, no, thank you. Have you seen the reverence this is held in? Yeah, uh, the, guard, the guard had this their 16th um, best crime film of all time. Yeah, and the Cahier de Cinema <laughs> uh, voted as like their best film of the year. Like, how? What? Uh, there's occasionally there's just these films where I, I feel like I've been sucked into a vortex where I'm in an alternate reality or I've seen a different film from everybody else on the planet. Yeah. This was definitely one of these films. It's like, what the earth? Why is anything of any consequence in this film at all? Oh, I, just, I just don't get it. This was an absolute struggle. It, it, hmm. Look, I mean, if we're, to, to be like fair to it for a reason, I suppose I don't really mind a lot of the acting performances in as much as they're doing the, what the script is telling them to do, and I don't mind the te- sort of technicalities of the the production design, all that. That's all fine, but just the abs- the plot is nonsense, and all the characters are completely stupid, and I don't understand why anyone would give this. I don't know how generously you have to read this to make it any good at all, and it just puzzles me. It really does. So. I oh, I spent a lot of time thinking about this last night. I, I watched this last night. And look, my thoughts are this. Is it not the dichotomy of the French middle class that they will embrace the relative austerity of a modest three-door family car, yet they will tolerate a 16-year-old boy sporting a ponytail and a cravat? <laughs> now you <laughs> you <laughs> that is, that's certainly a sentence that's that is one of the most sensitive sentences you've ever said on uh on film craig that's Right, I, 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 I had borrowed Kate's iPad to watch this on because I thought, I, listen, Drew's spoken enough about this film. I know the regard it's held, and I'm not going to watch this on my phone. You know, being the big guy I am, I'd said to my wife, "It's all right. You watch something on the television tonight. Can I borrow your iPad to watch this film? Because I didn't want to do it the disservice of watching it on my phone screen." Um, and so I, I pressed pause, and it was a good ten minutes of sullen contemplation before I even began to formulate my thoughts properly and actually write anything down. You guys know that I have long harboured suspicions about the French, right? And (laughs) the way that people casually interact with each other in this movie does nothing to dispel that suspicion. From Sophie and Jean's increasingly infantile behaviour to the employee that you mentioned, Drew, at the patisserie who snatches your purse and indignantly asserts that you have the correct change and that's all right with you. The the discordant behaviours at the peripheries of French society, one step abstracted from what the rest of the world would perceive as normality, right? I've been fortunate enough in my career to spend time both living and working in Germany, and Holland on multiple occasions and I embraced and was enriched by those cultures and their specific mores but under no circumstances can I imagine myself doing the same in France and if by some circumstance beyond my control 
such a commitment were required of me, I would embark upon it fearfully and with protest. (laughs) As I have grown older, I have naturally assimilated more occasional instances of French popular culture, and my suspicion has tended exponentially toward fear. I worry... (laughs) that these behaviours represent a shared insanity, but it terrifies me to think it might actually be some form of 4D genius. Oh, <laughs> to- hey, can I just mention, like, just, I have lived in France for a short while, mm-hmm. uh, and while a number of the people I was surrounded with were expatriates from other countries, I still uh, interacted with several French people mm-hmm. who were all lovely and nothing like anybody in this film. Um, so... And there's one that was like some kind of weird issue with um, right. French popular culture and like media and things rather than the actual people because they're not like that. Mm. Right. Your experience aside, man, I'm sorry. I respect the French as individuals as I do <laughs> all of my fellow humans, but in concert, I simply will not sanction this level of idiosyncrasy, Drew. If this movie <laughs> has a message, it is this. Do not come to France. (laughs) I, this, more than any movie I've seen recently, this baffled me. And I, it's not that I've, um, it's not that I've paid much attention. So an analogue, Isabelle Huppert for me is in the same sort of league as um, someone like uh, Julianne Moore, right? But with Julianne Moore, I've paid a great deal of attention to her um, to her career. Uh, whereas with Isabelle Huppert, I, I think I first became aware of her, I saw uh, Hal Hartley's film Amateur in 1985. It was, I think, the first thing that I saw her in. And I was like, oh, right, okay. And initially it was... An attraction. I don't know. There's something. Ve- there's there's something I find very attractive about Isabelle Huppert, and on that terribly surface level, I paid some attention to her as an actor. And it's not that I have followed her career necessarily with a great deal of intent, but I've seen her in three or four films over the um, the intervening years. And actually, was that not the same year as this? It was. So that's interesting. This is the first film I've seen Isabel Luper in where I actively despised her. And her performance, I'm not sure what this character, the purpose of either of these characters was. I just find that behaviour so bizarre and infantile from the off mm-hmm. that I've just completely detached from any sort of narrative um propulsive intent um am i supposed to agree with these characters am i supposed to at least sympathize with their actions ultimately because from what i could see yes the the family were privileged certainly but i don't think they were leveraging that privilege in a particular way uh like you i think you said drew perhaps on occasion they came across as a little bit patronizing but they were not the poster childs for murdering the middle class and in particular the kids I thought were suspiciously well adjusted and did not behave in a particularly privileged way they were engaging with other adults and I'm sorry who's the the, uh, was it Jean the main character again sorry Sophie's the maid Sophie sorry um they they both engaged with Sophie on like a a sort of a, a very honest they were they were very honest interlocutors when they they yeah um, well, look at um, Virginie Lady Enscart de Melinda. Mm. Um, she's this rich um, person, or you assume she is, she's 
Yeah. Um, not quite like the most expensive car or anything, but she's able to fix cars, you know. Yes. Um, and then she's just... And the, she's and she's she's empathetic. Yeah, and she's in the kitchen with the with Sophie and her when she discovers that she's um illiterate, yep. Illiterate yeah, so I could, That's all right. My illiterate I can remember the word there. <laughs> uh, oh the irony. Yes. Uh, they're sitting in the kitchen and she's like she's she's quite caring and she's like immediately like yeah. Yeah, my dad will um, help you get help for that and she's like because she she was smart enough to realise what it was. She's immediately sympathetic and and, he, and yeah, even if not, her even if her response is one of privilege, which is my dad can fix that, it was out of sympathy and out of care. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't out of the need to leverage her social standing yeah. over over Sophie's. But not, not suddenly I'm going to blackmail you and I'll, I'll kill you in 30 minutes, you know? That's like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Absolutely mental. Hard-boiled mental. This uh, this film bored me up until the last five minutes where it absolutely terrified me and confirmed all of my suspicions about an entire nation. <laughs> <laughs> We could never know them. We could never trust them. <laughs> I don't know. This movie left me thinking because in later years, I know it's been a bit of a joke, and I, I and I do uh, I do say these things jokingly. Of course, I don't hold anything against the French, and I've I myself have leveraged that as a sort of comic medium with with you guys in particular over the years. I've I've had this sort of faux suspicion of uh, <laughs> of the French, but there was a real danger that this film almost called it into reality. Um, and I just I don't know I don't know if there's I came away from this film and do you know what my biggest takeaway was I'm like oh right okay I don't know if French culture is this different because in the same way the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima has sent shockwaves through Japanese culture for decades after uh, is this is this behaviour some sort of function of Nazi occupation? Uh, you know, I, <laughs> the Dutch were occupied also, and I, I spent three months living and working there, and and was, you know, had no suspicions about their cultural mores whatsoever. But this is, I don't know, man. I, uh, do you know what? If this had just been a boring film with two really unsympathetic and frankly unbelievable lead characters i would have left it at that the real sort of worrying resounding bell for me was to then having formulated my thoughts on it to then have pursued an avenue of inquiry into the critical respect that this film commands and really have never felt so at odds with critical opinion I don't think I honestly safely think this is the most I have been at odds with critical opinion on a film in my entire life where I genuinely yeah, can't understand yeah. you know well, where you can you can you can often sort of disagree and well look I maybe I didn't enjoy this film but on a technical filmmaking level I can understand why this is revered or in terms of what this film is hoping to achieve in social commentary I get why people are relating to this film or have taken some sort of enjoyment from it I am at a total loss yeah, I'm looking at all the the things people are praising it for and saying that the great characters and stuff, and then like how it's great that Closure Brawl had given like just enough hint in the um, the idea that like oh that they're saying that they've had trouble hanging on to a maid before, so maybe the maid just didn't like living that far out of town, and like there was absolutely innocent the suggestion maybe that any oh, one of them because he's given just reasons why that just might not enough have hints, out. Yeah. yeah, just enough hints there. It's like no, there's no information there. 
As that, that is absolutely nothing. That is willfully projecting intent upon something about which you have already made up your mind. Yeah, you've that decided is, that, that is, this is special and you should try and find a way to justify being special. Exactly. That is not something that I guarantee you those those same critics would allow almost any other film away with. Yeah. That's, I feel uh, like um, the, the way it feels like if that film had turned into something like uh, Mikael Haneke's Funny Games or something, yes. and they just took the family hostage, that would work, actually. Mm-hmm. You could see the, the way that that film would go, like, they just became good. But, like, no, the way it happens, like, it, uh, uh, I, I don't know. It's, I feel we had very similar reactions back in the day when we did that French New Wave um, episode, which Gibral, of course, is part of as well. And mm. I think a lot of the films we covered then we had similar reactions to it. Like, I, I, I cannot understand why this is valued, and yeah, certainly it's made for us. Apparently, yeah, um, it, yes. I think this film is being read with a generosity that it cannot possibly support in a vacuum, and uh, it just felt like nonsense yeah. to me. I was also sort of baffled as to it. Just seems like oh, we just need to close the loop on the characters to why we can expect Sophie's character to get away with this at the end. The whole sort of contrivance of the daughter having started recording on her birthday present boombox and that playing out as the credits just like oh look an alibi or certainly evidence that suggests it was purely Isabel Luper's character whose name I cannot be bothered remembering was she Jean. Was she who she was Jean. Jean. Oh, she was Jean, right okay um okay that sets her up and it lets Sophie off the hook I don't by that point I don't care that was entirely superfluous because you've demonstrated such nihilism up to this point these characters that I don't I, I it seems bizarre to me to suggest that Sophie would care about whether she got away with this act or not I yeah, at what stage things. does someone committing that act to you know care about whether or not they're going to get away with it and it was so detached from any her, reality her voice is on that um tape as well and she's oh, just standing it? right next to the police yeah it's like she clearly doesn't care mm. i think we can all agree it's a stupid film uh, let's <laughs> move on yes <laughs> well it was worth talking about um right if not watching but yes, yes. okay yes. i worry We've that done a lot- that hard work for you listeners yes. yes i worry that a lot of that was rum-fueled anti-french <laughs> rhetoric on my part but at least we're all in broad agreement that uh yes yeah the film was yeah. And um, I haven't had anything to alcoholic to drink in weeks, so mm. it's definitely not that for me. Uh, well, on tonight of all nights, we're recording on an, an hour and a quarter from New Year's Eve, uh, listeners. So on tonight of all nights, Drew, you'll you'll be indifferent to know that I am making up that ground for you. Um, <laughs> so 1996 is bound. There was a widely held belief, which I now understand to be utter bollocks, that Bound, the low-budget 1996 thriller from the Wachowskis, was essentially a testbed for the sibling directorial duo to prove they could work a film set prior to being greenlit for The Matrix. To the best of my knowledge, either one or both of the sisters have since discredited this, and in retrospect, it seems pretty obvious that the business correlation between a $4 million lesbians versus the mafia heist movie and a $70 million sci-fi epic seems pretty slim. (laughs) Jennifer Tilly plays Violet, a former waitress who is now the girlfriend of mid-tier mafia goon Caesar, Joey Pants, though we soon come to learn she is essentially trapped in a cycle of holding court with a number of Caesar's associates within the mob. Looking for a way out of this life which denies her any number of freedoms, not least among them her sexuality, Violet seduces ex-con Corky, 
Gina Gershon, who has taken up employment as the Mafia's property maintenance expert, and together the pair hatch a scheme to relieve Caesar of the $1 million plus he and his associates have just recovered from an accountant on the skim. It's a simple enough setup, satisfyingly executed, and remains so today, even on rewatch number X, and there is still a sense in which this remains my favourite of the Wachowskis movies. Somewhat sensationalised at the time, and subject to that late 90s, early 2000s scourge of uncut version DVD sleeve proclamations, Bound's fleeting portrayals of intimacy between its two female leads was always overblown, an artefact of its time augmented by Tilly and Gershon's obvious appeal to the male gaze, and subsequent accusations of lipstick lesbianism. Swap either female lead for a male character, and neither the setup nor the supposedly explicit content would have given cause for anyone to bat an eyelid. Still, if sensationalism helped bring this movie to the attention of a broader audience, then fine, for it was, and is, at least, a good movie. With a small cast in only two main locations, namely a gangster's apartment and the apartment through the wall, (laughs) it would be really easy for Bound to come across as stagey, but the notion never really crosses my mind during viewings as there's enough of interest going on in terms of camera work and sound design amongst other things to distract from a script that could easily be retrofitted to resemble a mammoth play. The performances are pretty solid throughout, though we're dealing with characters and a world so detached from my perspective of day-to-day reality that I'm loath to call judgement on their authenticity. If I were in the business of quantifying mafia cliches, then I'd say I find Joey Pants engaging enough. But this is Tilly and Gershon's show, and I really enjoy their performances here, at least partly because we have not one, but two leads from a part of society which was until very recently cripplingly underrepresented. I don't know that either Tilly or Gershon was afforded much opportunity to demonstrate their talent until this point, and I have a narrow range of depressingly predictable assumptions which we've already discussed as to why that probably was. I would have liked to have seen them afforded more high-profile roles in the years following, but again, as we've previously discussed, for either actor, I could count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I have come across their billing in the quarter century since. As a calling card, I think Bound holds up reasonably well, and if it were true that this was essentially a demo reel, then it'd be safe to say Warner's got a bit of a bargain. Either way, an interesting piece of low-budget filmmaking, and one which, owing to its two leads, still feels surprisingly contemporary. Yeah, I like Bound. I've not seen it in a long time. I'd kind of forgotten most of the details. Mm. I mean, I, I can't deny, certainly back in the, the 1990s when I saw it first, I mean, a much younger man, that the kind of sensuality and the very attractive ladies in the front were part of the appeal. Oh, um, my days. Yeah. But there is there is more to it than that. I mean, it's not outstanding, but it's really, it's quite a simple concept, fairly low budget. And it's like, I, there is something to your uh, idea of it being stagey, Craig. Mm. I mean, and some of it's a bit over the top too, like the police officer's not going to notice standing on a blood-soaked carpet. It's a bit much, it's a bit of a stretch, but there's definitely, there's enough tension and enough scenes to make it really quite enjoyable. The problem I've always had with the film, though, is that there's a character in it called Corky. Yeah, I'm not having that. That's the stupidest <laughs> name I've heard in a good long time. That and you and I share an opinion on that, Drew. That has always <laughs> bothered me. Um, but what are... Um, somebody who hadn't read The Dandy as a child would have found that name <laughs> quite so stupid. I don't know, but it's a dumb, dumb name. Um, mm. And honestly, every time it takes it out for me. And But yeah, it's the only real issue I have with it, I mean, it's not the most remarkable film I've ever seen, but it's solid. Um, it's a solid B-movie. 
uh, and I'm quite happy with that. The only issue I have is structural, because I, I don't really think that the film beginning where it does really adds anything. Mm-hmm. It's like you're always waiting, like, oh, why is Gina Gershon lying tied up and where is this going to? Like, when you guess, it's like, yeah, well, okay, but did I really need to have that kind of yeah. tease at the start? Did it, it didn't add anything to it? It's not contextualising anything, no. Yeah, you could have structured it in a very linear manner, and it, it's linear apart from that. Yeah. Um, and had just this, the same quality of film, so you know, that, that just seemed unnecessary. It's solid. Um, yeah, I don't have a lot more to say to it though. I, I, I like it. It's it's a fine mm. film. Um, it's nothing. It's nothing special. But I watch it every now and then. Although it had been a while. And again, it comes to back to like what happened. Like Jennifer Tilly has been in. I know some TV stuff, but mm. a child's play sequel at some point. Yeah. Um, Gina Gershon I knew a lot before this. Like, um, face off, face offs the year after this. Face off um, and showgirls, yeah. Red Heat, and is um, she in Red Heat? Yeah, she's the girlfriend of the Russian cocaine dealer. I've never watched uh, Red Heat all the way through, and a couple other kings kind of back that time, but since then, not an awful lot. Uh, and I'd like, there's always the other point though to Craig though. It's like those women would be more than 29 years old after that point, you know, or yep. something. So that may yep. be why they're not in things anymore, because that's what yep. happens. And look, you've taken your clothes off for this film. I know it's depressing to think about. Yeah, I hadn't seen uh, Bound, actually, before this. I haven't seen any of these films uh, before talking about them today. And uh, I, I certainly don't mind Bound. More or less agree with what you're saying over there, Drew. It's a solid enough film. enjoyed it enough. The only thing I, I just... I know part of the point of having Jennifer Tilly in this role is she's kind of trying to play against type, but I just, I'm sorry, I just, I just don't hate Jennifer Tilly. I can't take her seriously in this film or anything, really. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think she's helped by her voice. No. She sounds like yes, exactly. And I know, again, that that's part of the point. She's making that effort to kind of modulate the voice when she's talking to, like, to uh, character rather than when he's talking with the men. And I, I, I get what they're going for. I just don't think she's really pulled it off. Uh, sorry, I just don't wear But that's really the only quibble with the rest of the film. And yeah, the, the structural things with some of the uh, plots and happenstances that gets through are, you know, they're, they're okay. They're certainly by no means the most egregious in uh, the company of its uh, fellows today. I enjoyed this one well enough, and I'll take what I can get in this episode. <laughs> I feel like you weren't having the best experience, isn't it, Scott? Which no. <laughs> yeah, is not to like just be damn and bound with faint praise. Bound is a solid film. Uh, yeah. It's not remarkable, yeah. it's solid. Um, and it really, it's, it really is a B-movie. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine. Because, I mean, a lot of the the noir films, this is... It's a know, genre full of them, isn't it? Yeah, this, uh, noir is a B-genre, really. Yeah. Um, and th- that's fine. So it kind of it fits it really if you're given a a resurrection of that genre in the 1990s to have that same kind of aesthetic yeah. and you know level of pitch really. Yeah, I think uh, in common with a lot of these films, but perhaps even more so in this case, Bound is an example of a film that at, at that time felt like a real sort of find and a really satisfying film to know, but now seems or or feels you know, uh, largely, if you were coming to this as a new viewer now, you might feel largely indifferent about it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think there's anything special about it in a modern context, but I think to know it at the time was something a bit more weighty uh, and something a bit more satisfying. But yes, mm-hmm. it's it's a good film, 
it was a good film then and it is a good film now. I'm not going to say sell your children for an opportunity to see it, but I still really enjoyed coming back to it again in common with a lot of these films. My my first viewing in, in quite a time. So uh, we move on to our final film. We're going back to Europe. Uh, curiously, the European films are the only ones not about money. Whether <laughs> I say something about the United States or not. Mm. Uh, insomnia, Scott. Yes, we round things off today with a trip to Arctic Norway, Tromsø in fact, where the 70-year-old girl Tanya has been found murdered. Jonas Engstrom, played by Selen Skarsgård, and Eric Vick, played by Sver Anker Ostal, are called in to investigate from down south, meaning that they'll have to get used to the midnight sun of a city that never sleeps, unless they buy very dense blackout curtains. Sadly, their hotel did not, so Jonas struggles to rest, which I certainly hope doesn't affect his performance or judgement. Oh no! <laughs> a, pl- a plan to bring the murderer back to the scene of the crime goes horribly wrong, with one police officer being shot and wounded by the suspect and through the mist, Jonas mistakenly shoots and kills Eric. Well, perhaps still in shock, he doesn't correct the assumption that it was the suspect that put a bullet in Eric, not Jonas, and so begins a spiral of lies and evidence tampering that does not bode well for his mental health. Particularly when the primary suspect comes to be revealed as crime author John Holt, played by Bjorn Floberg, who's very much aware of Jonas's deception and blackmails him in helping cover up his involvement and framing someone else for time his murder. Things naturally spiral from there, and if any justice is served in this sorry mess, it's entirely by accident. Saints Alive, a film I liked in this episode. Call <laughs> the authorities. Um, I don't believe I'd seen this previously, just the 2002 Nolan remake, which I liked, uh, but the original may have an edge on it. Uh, the central narrative is twisty without being outlandish, and the continual harsh light of day gives us a very different feeling to the activities normally best served by darkness, so it has a dis- distinctive style and atmosphere. It is, however, still in Skarsgård that makes the film a joy to watch, convincingly unravelling over the course of the piece in a way that makes for compelling viewing. I suppose you could argue that the supporting cast is rather less well-served, but this is a film that knows where the primary point of interest is and pursues it with dedication. I don't, apparently, have a great deal more to say about Insomnia, other than it's good and you should watch it. So, do that, I guess. Yeah, I, with my experience with La Ceremonie um, and how... Somehow I'd liked it the first time, and honestly, I, I, I need to like find somebody to time travel just to find out what was going on that day and whether somebody <laughs> slipped me a Mickey or something. It's all right. It's, a, it's enough that you've owned up to your sins. Drew. We don't, I don't need you to repent any more than you already have. <laughs> but understanding fine. is the key to not repeating them, Greg Shirley. <laughs> there is that. So it's about trepidation going back to Insomnia, which I hadn't seen since that's probably 15 years, something like that. I'm really pleased to find that, yes, I like it. It's I can't actually compare it to the Christopher Nolan remake because I remember Robin Williams and Al Pacino and Hilary Swank. And yep. I can remember bits of the coastline in Alaska. And that's about it. I think my memory's just filling in the fact that it's Al Pacino. He was probably chewing the scenery. And that's it, but that, that's just a kind of my, <laughs> my brain defaulting when I can't remember anything. Mm-hmm. Uh this is yeah it's really solid the the only thing i think that i have a problem with and it's it's not this film's problem it's like it's really easy to sell in a film that it's never daytime you say i have some like 30 days of night or dark city or something you know films all completely set at night that's really easy to get but trying to sell that there is no night that it's just day i don't Mm. i don't find it's very easy to do and so it's a struggle for the film to to really make it seem how odd that must be yeah so you can have to be told rather than shown that i just i think it's really hard to convey in film i think there's an allure about the night that we don't have about the day 
because we spend most of our time in the daylight anyway that it's not a stranger to us, right? Yeah, it's easier to talk about interesting things that happen in the night. So you have to like keep like showing that it's like three o'clock in the morning and it still looks like it's like ten o'clock in the morning. And it, yeah, because nothing know, feels out of out of place about the daytime, right? Yeah. So when you're experiencing it, yes, it's going to feel really odd. But to try and convey that in film, it doesn't. It, yeah, it's, yeah, it's difficult. Um, so you really have to be told that, which is a bit of a pity. Again, that's not a problem with the film. I, I don't see how you would really do that. But yeah, it's. Beyond that, yeah, it's really solid. Still, Skarsgård's great, and realise you know he's, he is in the end a bad person. But it doesn't seem like he started off that way. He's like made a series of really bad decisions that just ended up snowballing, getting worse. Yeah, but beyond that, unlike Scott, I, I like Scott. I don't have an awful lot more to say other than I liked it. Um, mm. If there's a problem I have, other than like that inherent nature of it being difficult to convey, it's that I'm not quite sure why they did the effects in the last shot in Microsoft Paint. <laughs> yeah. To make his eyeballs glow. Yeah, I did, I did wonder why he was a vampire at that point. But uh, yes. <laughs> MS seemed very late in the day for that kind of revelation. MS Paint aside, I think probably we're, this is one of the ones we're all in agreement with. Uh, I, I did enjoy. I'm, I'd kind of forgotten. I, I was under the impression I'd only seen the Christopher Nolan version of this film. So it probably sounds a bit silly to say that I had forgotten that I had actually seen this as well. I think I'd seen the Christopher Nolan first and then watched this out of curiosity, but as soon as I started watching what this... I did, yeah. Yeah. As soon as I started watching this, I thought, oh no, I have. Now, it seems odd to forget that you've watched one of two essentially identical films, <laughs> but nonetheless... <laughs> well, maybe that's why you would forget, because yeah. they're essentially identical. Yeah, nonetheless, it's a feat I managed. Um, and I'm not convinced that I don't still enjoy the Nolan version Slightly more. If you put a gun to my head, I might opt for the Nolan version. But if anything, the overwhelming sentiment I had after rewatching this original version of Insomnia was, I wonder why Nolan chose it to remake in the first place. Because I think it's the only time he has adapted existing material in his career to this point, I'm right in saying. Everything else that Nolan's done has been an original work, I think. Um, and I'm not sure what well, it was. I'm not quite sure you can say Batman's original, Craig. <laughs> No, no, of course, no, no, no. But in terms of actually, he's, he wasn't adapting an existing. Yes, he was working with an existing license, but he wasn't remaking an existing film. Yeah, I, I know what you meant. I was just yeah. Um, that's all right. That's all right. Um, just having a go. <laughs> so I think that's all right. I'm used to it by now. Uh, the uh, maybe something just that that little bit more slick and polish about Nolan's version of it that on any given day I might opt for over this but I still enjoyed this um, it's just I think the the biggest value that this film has is in turning the noir genre on its head and being essentially at heart the absolute opposite of noir <laughs> um, whatever, whatever the French for light is um, and it is that concept of wringing something out of unusual out of something that we all take for granted and the allure of noir is that there is a, a certain appeal to the night and the things that happen in the night and there's nothing unusual about what happens in the day so how do you how do you form a point of interest around a film that is predicated entirely upon that as its central premise and I think it does really well at that and I'm not surprised that I'm not surprised that it was chosen to be remade for a Western, a more Western audience, sorry, or a more mainstream Hollywood Western audience. But I suppose I am surprised that uh, Nolan uh, was, because by this point, I think he'd established himself enough that you wouldn't expect he would have to pick up something just for the, 
Was this was this after the Prestige? No, no. This is only second film. First thing was following, and then this is um, this is before Memento. Is it? Oh no, it's just after Memento. No, yes, yeah, after um, Memento. Okay. So yeah, yes. Um, is it not uh, after the Prestige? No, Prestige is twenty oh six. Of course it is. Of course it is. Prestige. It's I'm before sorry. Batman Begins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting my dates mixed up because Prestige was the only the second film I saw at the cinema with my now wife. Um, so I forget um, that would have been then. Yeah. So sorry, but yeah, I oh, I suppose maybe then that quick quick correction for us all. Uh, the Prestige is based on a book, which somehow I had managed to avoid knowing until today. As had I. Clearly, fair enough. Yeah, so I suppose maybe now in retrospect, <laughs> the past 30 seconds has made me less um, <laughs> concerned that Christopher Nolan would have chosen to remake this because perhaps it was more of a commercial option available to him, to him at the time. But if you've listened to recent episodes, you'll all know what I think of Christopher Nolan now anyway, so I've no concern <laughs> whatsoever. Yes, this is a good film. Um, certainly up there with the the best of what we've spoken about today. Uh, if you put a gun to my head and said, pick your two favourite films from this podcast, it would probably be this and The Last Seduction. So for what it's worth, there you go. Yes, I think I would say exactly the same too. Hmm. I wouldn't. <laughs> You're so contrary. You just say like insomnia and leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much, pretty much. Uh, that will wrap us up for today, and we shall be back with you soon with another podcast, which will be about films, unsurprisingly enough. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, through Twitter at FudsonFilm or through the Facebook at facebook.com slash FudsonFilm or email us at podcast at FudsonFilm.com. And until next time, take care of yourself and each other, and I shall bid you adieu, and I'm sure these guys will do too. <laughs> I regret everything. <laughs>